0: Good morning. Good morning. All right. In many marriages, there is one spouse who overreacts, <laughs> and one who does not. Um, in many marriages, not all, but in many marriages, there is one um, spouse who leans more toward uh, like freaking out and stressing out, and one that has more of a calming effect on the household. Right? In my household, I am the one that stresses out, and my wife is the one who has the calming effect on the household. And, um, this has been true our whole marriage, although it was more true before, like, uh, we've been married for 20 years now, and so I have become a little bit more like her, not, I've not gone all the way over to her side, but I have become a little bit more like her and it has been good for me. Um, but when we were first married, we were very different and I was very much the freaker outer and she was the calming one. And in fact, I recently reminded her of a story that happened, I think it was during the first year of our marriage. So about 20 years ago, um... We, I, I took a job to be the youth director at a church uh, in a suburb of Dallas, Texas. And this was like my first day on the job, or I don't know, second day of the job. We had not lived there very long. I do not think we had even um, like, unpacked the boxes at our apartment yet. So I'm just now starting this job at this church, and I set up my office and, you know, had like my desk there and my computer, and I did my first official act as youth pastor at this church, which was I sent out a letter to tell the people a youth group is going to get started, okay? This was 20 years ago when people sent out letters and stuff, okay? So I I wrote out, I typed out the letter exactly what I wanted it to say, and it said, you know, youth group's going to begin on such and such date at such and such time and such and such location, and, you know, explained it all, and I was taking my job very seriously, and I wanted to do a good job, and I wrote it just right, and then I was like, okay, we got it, and so then I stuffed all the envelopes. My wife was there with me. We did it together. Stuffed all the envelopes, hand-addressed every envelope, put a stamp on the corner of every envelope and then took it to the post office to mail off. And the post office was very close to our church, like one block down and then one block over. We could have walked to the post office from the church building, but we drove in this particular case and drove to the post office and took the letters and put them in that like blue mailbox that's outside the post office. And we did it just before five o'clock. We wanted it to go out that day. And so just before the last pickup time for the mail came, We got our letters in there, and I was like, you know, and I went back to the church office, sat at my desk, and, you know, felt good about the the first thing I had done as the youth pastor there, and I picked up a copy of the letter, um, like one of the copies that hadn't been put in an envelope and sent off, and I just picked it up and reread it, you know, with great joy. (laughs) And then I noticed there was a mistake. (laughs) And I freaked out. Like, my emotions went, like, way high right away, and I said, oh, no, because, and this is, just so you know, this was a big mistake. This was not, like, like that. This was not, like, um, I wrote has instead of had. I mean, this was something, it was where it was confusing, and it contradicted itself. Maybe it was something, like, I don't remember, but maybe it was something, like, youth group will start on Saturday, August 15th, and August 15th wasn't even a Saturday, and so it's like, well, what they're going to wonder, is it this Saturday? Is it next Saturday? Is it actually on the 15th? You know, what is it? And so I'm sitting there looking at it going, oh, my gosh, this is confusing. They're not going to know what to do. And this is the first thing that I've sent out. This is terrible. What do I do? And my wife said, What's well, it's no big deal. We can just send out an oops letter tomorrow. And we'll just tell them what the real information is. And I said, no, we can't just send out an oops letter tomorrow. <laughs> This is the first official thing I've sent out. This is the only communication I've had with them. Like, this is, like so far, 100% of what I've done as a youth pastor is wrong. Like, I've, I've, got, I've literally messed up everything I've attempted to do so far. And so she said, well, why don't I go to the post office and see if I can get the letters back? And then, uh, you know, and then we'll, you can send it tomorrow. And I and just want to let you know, I spoke to her in a way that I do not speak to her anymore, all right? I've been married for 20 years now, I have learned some things, but this was 20 years ago when I had not learned things. And so I said to her, "When she said, why don't I go to the post office and get them? I said, that's ridiculous. Let me give you two reasons why that's stupid. First of all, it's already after five, the last collection happened, like they took the letters and they took them on to whatever step two is, like it's too late now. And even if it weren't too late what are you going to do? Go to the post office and based on your word alone, convince them to let you root through the mail and pull out your letter. Just say, oh, that one's my letter and that one's my letter. And just by your own verbal testimony, root through the mail, the U.S. mail, and just take out your letters. You think they're going to let you do that? They don't do that. And she said, well, let me just, what, can I just go try? And I, I, I said, sure, fine, go waste your time. And she got in her car and she drove around the corner and she went to the post office and I sat down on my desk going, my, my career's over. <laughs> what am I going to do? I've messed up everything, everything I've done. I've messed up everything I've done. And then she pulled into the parking lot about five minutes later with all of the letters in her hand and <laughs> flopped them on my desk. She said, look what I did. Dun, dun, dun. And I said, how did you do it? And she said, I pulled up right as the postman was taking the letters out of the mailbox. And he was taking them all out, and the ones that we sent out were green, so they stuck out different from the, the other letters. And she said, all of those green ones are the ones we sent out. And she said, I just explained the whole thing. It was a typo. My pastor, my, my husband, he's a youth pastor. She said, I just explained the whole thing. And he just grabbed the green letters, and he gave them to me. And I, even to this day, I look back on that story and go, that had to be illegal. Like, that's not... You convinced that guy to commit a crime, I'm almost sure. And so she came back with all the letters. And so we destroyed them. We wrote out you know, ones that had the correct information. We sent them out. And that is why my career has gone so well ever since. <laughs> she saved me. Okay, now, honestly, though, I tell you that story to say this. My emotions in that situation were, were very big. But they didn't help the situation out. And my wife's emotions were much smaller, much more in control. And her emotional control actually... Helped the situation, right? My emotions did not help that situation out, and hers did. And so I wanted to start off this series by just stating the obvious, which is our feelings have a profound effect on our lives. Our feelings have a profound effect on our lives, not just the enjoyment of your life, it affects what you do, the attitude you have, the stuff that you say to people, the stuff that you try to do, the stuff that you actually do. Our feelings have a profound effect on our lives. And emotions have been running high for a lot of people for the past 18 months. And that's why we are addressing this now. It was not originally my idea to do this. Originally, I thought about addressing this next year. I had written out on a a paper the topics and things that I was thinking about teaching for 2022, and I showed it to someone who's on staff here at this church, and I said, this is what I'm thinking. What do you think about this for, for next year? And he said, oh, this one about emotions, you might want to bump that up to this year. Move that into 2021. And I was like, you know why? And he said, because it's relevant now. Like People are dealing with that now. They may st- it still may be relevant in 2022, but it-, it is for sure relevant right now. And so I said I took his advice and I said, okay, we're going to bump it up. And so we bumped it up to this month. So for the month of November, our topic is going to be hard feelings. For the four weeks of November, this is what we're going to talk about. Worry, shame, anger, and sadness. Those are the four hard feelings we're going to cover over the next four Sundays. Worry, shame, anger, and sadness. And I wanted to be clear about the purpose of this series, just so you understand what it is. This next four weeks, we will be, unapologetically, be preaching sermons. So if you're wondering, what is the hard-feeling sermon series, I just want to let you know for sure. What this is is sermons. This is not a lecture on psychology. This is not some kind of like large group counseling session that we're going to have for a month. This is not medical advice. I just really want to be clear on that, okay? In fact, if you pay attention to the words that we're going to be using over the course of this month, I have purposely picked words like worry and sadness and not words like anxiety and depression, even though they're technically synonyms. And the reason why I've done that is because, in my opinion, anxiety and depression are words in the English language that have become medicalized more recently, and so I don't even want to get into that. I am not a doctor, I am not coming to these topics from that perspective, and I just want to let you know that. So that if you're thinking, like, ooh, what's he going to say about worry and sadness? Like, is he going to suggest we take a pill? Or maybe some of you are going to go, is he going to forbid us from taking our pills? And so I just wanted you to know, I have no plan of mentioning pills, right? Right? <laughs> Because, believe it or not, the Bible passages I'm going to teach to you, none of them mention pills. I checked. I double-checked. None of them mention pills. So I'm not even going to be talking about that. Okay? I just want to make it clear the goal for this series is to explain Bible verses. All right? And to exhort you to live according to a biblical worldview. That's what we want to do for the next four weeks. So with all of that in mind, let's look at today's passage. Today's passage is Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 6. If you have a Bible with you, you can turn there. If you have a phone with you, you can turn there. If you have nothing with you, it's going to come up on the screen. In fact, no matter what you have with you, it is coming up on that screen. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 6. These are the words of the Apostle Paul to a group of Christians in Philippi called the Philippians. And he, he gives them a bunch of exhortations at the end of the book in the fourth chapter. And so I'm going to read to you some of them now. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 6, he says this, Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses every thought, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, if there is any praise, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. And so what I'd like to do is I would like to give you five exhortations from these verses this morning, because they are a collection of things that he is saying, like, do this and this and this. And so I'm going to give you these five exhortations from these verses And the first exhortation is very simple. Realize that the Bible says, don't worry. Okay? just going to start off very, very simple. Realize that the Bible says, don't worry. This passage begins with, the first two words are, don't worry. The first four words are, don't worry about anything. And this is not the only Bible passage that talks like this. Okay? This is not the only scripture like this. Jesus also spoke like this. I'm going to show you that in Matthew chapter 6. So this is our main text, but just for a second, I'm going to go and show you some stuff that Jesus said. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, Jesus said, this is why I tell you, what's the words? Don't worry, right? Same thing that Paul said, Jesus said it. This is now the second time we've seen this in the Bible, this morning. This is why I tell you, don't worry about what? About your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now, in this particular passage, I think that Jesus is actually talking about uh, financial worry. It may not be obvious because he doesn't use the word money here, and so you might think he's not talking about money, but that is what he had just been talking about, the verse before. I think he's still talking about it. But in their culture, they thought of things differently than we do. When he says, don't worry about what you will eat, don't worry about what you will wear, that would have sounded, I think, different in their culture than it does in ours. If somebody says to you, don't worry about what you'll wear... In our culture, mostly that means don't worry about what you'll wear out of the many, many, many options you have of all the stuff that you could wear. And so it's not about of you worrying, like, will I have enough covering to get through the winter? Don't worry about what you'll wear. In our culture, just means, like, don't worry about which outfit to pick out. But I don't think that's what he means here. Same thing for don't worry about what you'll eat. In our culture, if we say don't worry about what you'll eat, like, that's easy in our culture to be like, oh, okay, so when I get to the, I'm just whatever I pick off the menu is fine, right? That's not what he's talking about. I think he's in a culture where when he says, don't worry about what you'll eat or what you'll drink or what you'll wear, he's saying, don't worry if you're going to have enough food and water and clothing to survive. Trust that God will take care of you. These were their financial concerns. And so he says that, and then he talks about lilies and birds for a little while that I'm going to skip through, and I'm just going to go to verse 31 where he says this pretty much again. Verse 31, same chapter, he says, So don't worry, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For the idolaters eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Don't worry. Why? Because the idolaters, this word could also be translated Gentiles. In this context, Jesus is saying, the people who don't know God yet you should not be scattering around going, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? How are we going to be able to provide for ourselves? How are we going to survive? What are we going to do? He says, no, no. That's what the people who don't know God do. The people who don't know that there's a God out there that cares about them and is looking out for them, that, that's, what they, that's what they act like. Don't act like them. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. And then he says, verse 33, but, and I think this is like in Instead of acting like someone who doesn't know God and worrying all the time, he says, verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. So, so, so Paul said don't, said, don't worry, and then Jesus said, don't worry, and then Jesus said, don't worry again, and then Jesus said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In other words, make, if you're going to be concerned about something, make your concerns the same as God's concerns. Your primary concern, your, your first concern, right, the, the thing at the top, should be God's kingdom and his righteousness. Be, be concerned about what God is concerned about, and then God will take care of your concerns. And then he says, therefore, don't worry. This is the fourth time in the Bible we've now seen these words just this morning. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself, each day has enough trouble of its own. And so when we go back to our first point, realize the Bible says don't worry, I guess I want you to see that the Bible says don't worry multiple times and gives us the reasons for it. But once we realize that, <clears throat> once we realize the Bible says don't worry, that brings up another question, which is, well then, is worry like a sin? Because typically in the Bible, if, there's, if you find the word don't followed by a verb... That thing's a sin, right? Like don't murder, yeah, got that, that's, a, that's wrong. Don't steal, is that in the Bible? And so, and that would make sense to us. I think a lot of us would go, D- I know murder's a sin, don't murder, get that. I knew that theft was a sin, right? Don't steal, I get that. But don't worry. I didn't know, I mean, is that really a, a moral issue? Like I realize I probably shouldn't worry. But is, is it wrong to do so? So let me give you my full answer to that. I believe that when considering the Bible as a whole, I think that worry is actually a bit like the emotion of anger, in that there is a positive version of it and a negative version of it, okay? And and that's a spoiler, just so you know, um, when we get to anger week. I assume that in anger week we're probably going to say that. The Bible is very clear that anger is a sin, The Bible calls anger a sin. Jesus preached about anger. Jesus said that anger was a sin, talked about the judgment that would come upon um, angry people. Paul lists sins sometimes in some of his letters, and anger is thrown in there in the list of sins. Anger is definitely a sin in the Bible. And yet, there are places in the Bible where it says things like be angry and don't sin. There are people in the Bible who sometimes are angry, and it's very clear they're not being sinful. God God the Father is one of those characters in the Bible who is angry, and it's not wrong when he does so. Jesus is a character in the Bible who is angry in certain parts of the story, and it is obvious that he was not wrong for doing so. And you look at the Bible and you realize, wow, anger is definitely a sin, and yet not every single instance of anger is a sin. There is an unrighteous version of it and a righteous version of it, and maybe many of you in this room knew that. I think that applies to worry as well. Um, I think that there's a positive version of worry and a negative version of worry. And, the, and I think that we don't often think about a positive version of worry because in the English language, when we talk about worry in a positive sense, we don't use the word worry. Like if we we're talking about good worry, we will usually use a different word, like concern. Have you ever had that? I'm not worried, I'm concerned. Right? Sometimes we even say we're concerned when we're worried. Right? But I'm not worried, I'm, I'm concerned. Is, is concern a sin? And so I wanted, to, I wanted to, you to know this, that in English... The, the word worry, and the phrase be anxious, and the word care, and the word concern, all of those four things are four different words in English, right? Care, concern, worry, those are all different words in English. Not in New Testament Greek. They're not. They're all the same word, or they all come from the same root word. Like throughout the Bible, sometimes you'll see a verb form of it or a noun form of it, but it's all, like a lot of these words that I'm going to show you are all from the same word, and sometimes it's positive, but in the cases that it's positive, it's not translated worry, because we think of worry as a negative thing. So I just want to show it to you. If you're, if you're looking at Philippians chapter 4, which is our passage this morning, so this is it right here, okay? Don't worry about anything. That's the verse that we're on. And if you just go back one page, in the same exact letter, same exact author, in chapter 2, you'll see these verses. Paul says, Now I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I also may be encouraged when I hear news about you. So he's talking about Timothy. For I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely, what's the word? Care. It's the same word. It's the same word that later on he says, don't do it. So he says, no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests. All seek their own interests, but not those of Jesus Christ. In this particular verse, Paul is saying, there's this great guy named Timothy. You know what's so great about him? He cares about you. He's not just concerned about himself. He worries about you. That's why this guy's so great. I don't have anyone else like him that is that is worried about you like he is. That's what he's talking about here. Clearly, he's saying it's a good thing that Timothy does. And then one page over, he uses and I don't remember if it's the exact same word or a form of the word, but he says, "Don't do that about anything." Isn't that interesting? And then you look over at First uh, Corinthians. No, yeah, First Corinthians, chapter twelve. And it comes up again, but it's translated a little differently. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 25, Paul is talking about how Christians are supposed to treat one another within the body of Christ. And he says, so that there would be no division in the body, but that each, the, sorry, but that the members would have the same, there it is, concern for each other. Paul says, if the church is doing what it's supposed to do, there should be no division within the people, but the people should actually worry about each other the people should be concerned about each other and so we look at the bible and we realize well there are some times where this thing is said and it's like it's a good thing it's the way that the people are supposed to treat each other it's it's the thing that's good about timothy and then we come across places in the bible where jesus and paul say do not do it and there may be some of you here that go oh well isn't that confusing to which i would say i don't think so at least i don't think it has to be if we were to learn this outside of the Bible, I don't think it would throw us off very much. For instance, let's just imagine this. Let's use a non-Bible example. Imagine I'm talking to my son, okay? I have two sons and a daughter. Let's make it the oldest one, okay? I have a 12-year-old boy. And imagine I say to my 12-year-old boy, let's, let's imagine he's freaking out about something. He's really stressed out about something related to school, which, by the way, he's never stressed out about anything related to school. But, but imagine if he were. Imagine he's stressed out about something related to school. And I said to him, don't worry about it. Okay, don't, don't worry. You're, it's going to be fine. We got this. In fact, son, don't worry about anything. Like if you believe in Jesus Christ, your whole eternity is secure. And the little bumps and bruises in this life are just temporary. You are going to be okay forever. So don't worry about anything. Can you imagine? What if I said that to my son on Monday? And then imagine on Friday... I'm dropping him and his siblings off at a, um, at a school event. And as they're getting out of the van, I say, hey, I would just want you to look out for your brother and sister, okay? In fact, especially your sister. She's seven years old. I just I want you to look after her. Don't just be worried about your interests. Like, worry about your sister, okay? Because we're the, her parents and we're not going to be around, okay? So be sure you worry about your sister too, not just yourself. Would he understand what I mean? Yeah, would it, would it be inappropriate to say what father did you just say worry about my sister because on Monday you said don't worry about anything this is so confusing how can I bear to stay in this family much longer no that would be an overreaction it's obvious don't worry about anything means like God's got this he's going to provide for you but worry about your sister means like I want you to be concerned about her and look out for her I think we would just know that naturally, and I think that the people who read the Bible in its original language would probably have figured it out a little quicker than we would, that there is a good kind of concern that Timothy had for the Philippians. There is a good kind of concern that the people, the church people were supposed to have for one another, and there is a wrong kind of concern that the Bible says do not. Don't do it, the Bible says over and over again, don't. It's a kind of concern that comes from not trusting in God. A kind of concern that comes from acting like the idolaters. A kind of concern that comes from not sharing God's concerns. And that kind of worry needs to be repented of. It's a sin that we need to turn away from. And so that's point number one. Realize that the Bible says don't worry. There is a kind of concern that the Bible says turn from that. All right, number two. So I said five exhortations. Here's number two. Turn to God in prayer. So realize the Bible says don't worry and then turn to God in prayer. Where do you get that from, Mario? I get it from our verse. So back to Philippians chapter four, verse six. It says, don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. This verse does not just tell you what not to do, It tells you what to do. It doesn't just simply say, don't worry, end of sentence. It says, don't worry, but in the place of it, here's what you do instead. The alternative to worry in this verse is prayer. When we begin to feel unhealthy stress, pray, make a request, ask God for help. And I will admit right now, I'm not great at this. I really need to form a habit where this is something that's like the first thing I do when I begin to worry I need to pray when I begin to worry I need to pray and there are some of you in this room that I think the same thing goes to goes for you when you begin to worry you need to pray in fact can we say that together all right can you just repeat after me when I begin to worry I worry. I I need to pray all right now let's put it all together okay when I begin to worry I need to pray all right, just one more time. I want to make sure you got it. All right, I'm going to say, I'm going to count to three and then we're all going to say it together. One, two, three. When I begin to worry, I need to pray. Good. That's so important. Now, there may be some of you here that go, I don't like it when preachers do this repeat after me stuff. And what, is he, what are you trying to do, brainwash us? And my answer is, well, yeah, kind of, in a good way. <laughs> I am hoping that for some of us, today can be the beginning of a new habit. When I begin to worry... I need to pray. All right, that's number two. Let's move on to number three. So we realize the Bible says don't worry. We turn to God in prayer. Number three, have an attitude of thankfulness. Okay, where do you get that from? From the verse. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, what are the next two words? With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Well, that's interesting. The prayers that we pray in the midst of our stress are apparently not supposed to be just any old prayers. They're supposed to be prayers with thanksgiving. There's a particular attitude that is called for in these prayers related to worry, thankfulness. Apparently God did not want the Philippians to treat God like he owes them. And that hit the requests that they are known to God, that they make known to God. The prayers and petitions apparently were not supposed to be, I'm stressed and you need to fix this. You need to fix the problem. You need to fix the problem the way I want you to fix the problem, and you need to do it right away. It seems to me that's not the kind of prayer that a prayer and petition with thanksgiving would lead you toward. I think that prayers that are prayers with thanksgiving would push people to, well, first of all, it's going to push people to thank God f- for the good that he's already done. Which makes you think differently about the situation right at, right at the start, doesn't it? Like when you are worried about something, there is a bad thing that's on your mind. There's a bad thing that just happened that you're concerned about, or there is a bad thing that you think might happen tomorrow and you're worried about it. And so there's this bad thing on your mind. But in order to make a prayer and petition about that thing with thanksgiving, it seems to me that what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to acknowledge the ways in which God is already being faithful and has already been faithful to you. It's almost like this formula causes you to to have to stop thinking about the bad thing for a little bit and think about the things that are going right. Think, Think about the ways that God has been gracious to you and then let your request be made known to God. Isn't that powerful? Also, thankfulness puts a spotlight, I think, on the idea that God doesn't owe us anything. Because typically, you do not thank people for things that you think you deserve. Very rarely do we say thank you to God um, or thank you to anybody, really, our boss or our friends. Like, we don't say thank you to people when we think they owe us, when we think I earned that, I deserve that. But I think a prayer with thanksgiving is different than that. Thanksgiving is a reminder that shows, it reminds us that God shows us mercy. He doesn't give people what they deserve all the time. And in fact, if, if we got what we deserve, if everybody in this room got what we deserve, we'd be dead and eternally separated from God. Because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And in fact, the greatest mercy that God has shown us was what we talked about last week, the gospel. That Jesus Christ died on the cross, and when he did so, he took away from us our curse and took it on himself to save us so that we could be right with God for all of eternity and live with God in an eternity with no worries. That's the best news that there is. So what's the result of this? Because the next verse talks about that. It says, don't worry about anything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then the next verse says, and the peace of God, which surpasses every thought, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's an interesting verse. So right after it says, here's what you do with your worries, the next verse, it's interesting, there's a promise here, right? He says, this is what's going to happen. But he does not promise that God will do whatever you want. Right? That's not what this verse says. He does not promise that God will take whatever problem you're worried about and remove it. The the problems in your life that are external to you, this verse doesn't say he's going to come in and do anything about those problems. It doesn't say that. Sometimes he does. Many times he does. But this particular verse doesn't say he's going to come in and fix the problems that are on the outside of you. This particular verse says he's going to cause peace to come on the inside of you. The peace of God which surpasses every thought will guard your hearts and minds. And that phrase, hearts and minds, I think is a reference to the you that's on the inside of you. And it's a peace that he gives you that doesn't even make sense. At least that's how I interpret this, which surpasses every thought. Sometimes it's translated that the peace that passes understanding, right? It doesn't even make logical sense. Have you ever had that kind of peace? Where your, your life almost seems like it's falling apart and you're surrounded in chaos, and yet for some reason on the inside of you, There's a peace that's been given to you. Have you been in a situation that in the midst of chaos, you go like, I I don't even know what's going to happen next, and I don't know what to do next. But for some reason, I can rest in God. Have you ever had that? It's great. It's incredible. And then notice that it says, in Christ Jesus. will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I do not think those are extra unnecessary throwaway fluff words. He, he could have said, and the peace of God which surpasses every thought will guard your hearts and minds, period. That would have been a full sentence, would have been fine. He didn't. He said, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I believe that God's peace is for God's people. And God's people are the people who are united to Jesus Christ. This is not a generic peace. This is a this is peace that comes through Jesus Christ. I believe it is a peace that was purchased by Jesus Christ when he died on the cross, taking on our curse and taking away our curse from us. All right, we are almost out of time. And I said there were five exhortations. And we've done three. All right, realize the Bible says don't worry. Turn to God in prayer. Have an attitude of thanksgiving. And then I'm going to give you the last two just real quick. I'm going to show them to you. I'll say them real fast. I won't say a lot about them. The final two are going to be care, be careful what you dwell on and do the good that you know to do. And what I'm going to do is let me just read the paragraph that comes right after the one I just read to you. So right after it says, we'll guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, he says this next. Verse 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, if there is any praise, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. So I will let you know right now, um, I'm, I'm going to give you two more exhortations from this paragraph, but I am not 100% sure whether this paragraph is even supposed to be in this sermon. Because I don't know if he's still talking about the topic of worry or not. Right? So in favor of the theory he's not talking about worry anymore, he's moved on to a new topic, would be the fact that verse 8 starts with the word finally right? So he said, don't worry, pray to God about everything, and the peace of God will be with you. Finally, in other words, moving on to my next final topic, and now he's talking about what you think about and what you do, right? And he stopped talking about worry, and it's possible. Maybe this is an unrelated paragraph. However, after he talks about what you think about and what you do, he says, and the God of peace will be with you. And he had just said the peace of God will guard your hearts, and, and so I don't know um, if this is supposed to be directly connected or not, but just in case, I'm going to throw it in there, all right? So the next thing he says is, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, right? Dwell on these things, and so exhortation number four is, be careful what you think about. Be careful what you dwell on. I think that's true when, we t- when we're talking about worry, and I think it's true when you're talking about other things as well. You gotta be careful what you dwell on. I think you can control what you dwell on. I've said this before here. I don't think you can control every single thing that pops into your mind. That's my opinion. I don't think you can control everything that pops into your mind. I don't think you can control everything that you see. I don't think you can control every circumstance you're in and every situation you're in, which is, of course, gonna affect what you think about as you look at stuff. I don't think you can control every single thought that pops into your mind. But I do believe you can control what you dwell on. You do control what you purposely keep thinking about. And if you remember, we said this back during the Proverbs series when we talked about lust. Do you remember that? We talked about lust, and I said, I don't think you can control every thought that pops into your head. I don't think you can control everything you see at the beach. But you do control what you keep thinking about the rest of the afternoon. And so I think that applies here. When it comes to our worries, be careful what you dwell on. Whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, if there is any praise, dwell on these things. And then the fifth and final exhortation is, do the good that you know to do. Paul here says to the Philippians, do what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Right, The stuff that I have role modeled for you, the stuff that I taught you to do, do that stuff. Right, The right stuff, I taught it to you, do the right stuff. And in this particular verse, he does not specify what those things are. So I'm not going to specify what they are. I'm just going to say, in a room this size, I bet you there's a whole bunch of you, that you already know some right things. You already know some right things to do, so I would say to you, do the good that you know to do. Because sometimes we need to just choose to do the right that we know to do even when we don't feel like it. And then notice the ending. And the God of peace will be with you. What a promise. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you gave us our emotions to use for good and bad but I pray that you would help us to harness them for good. I thank you for this passage and I pray that you would help us to not worry about anything. I pray that you would help, especially those of us prone to this, that we would, when I begin to worry, I begin to pray. I pray you'd help us to have a thankful attitude. I pray you'd help us to be careful what we dwell on. I pray you'd help us to do what we know that you want us to do, even in the times where we don't feel like doing it. And I especially thank you for the gospel. Thank you that you would die on the cross so that you would be with us rather than being apart from us. Thank you for dying on the cross so that your peace would guard us. Thank you. I pray for us as a congregation. It's, it has been a hard year or two. And I'm sure there are people that are hearing this sermon through it like the lens of a specific stressor that just happened this week. I just ask that you would help them with it. In some cases, it may be your will to remove the problem, and I ask that you would. And there may be some cases where you are going to teach them to trust you, and you will give them peace. And I just pray that you would give them peace, and I pray you'd give me peace, and we thank you in advance for your peace. In Jesus' name, we thankfully pray. Amen.